Hello everyone. I want to give a little bit of warning that today's episode is quite a doozy at 90 minutes, but with the amount of information that our guest was giving today, Patrick Nosker, I was thinking that it might be a little bit irresponsible to rob you of any of the information. And honestly, I just couldn't find anything in here that I could cut down. Um, So I hope you enjoyed today's um, podcast. But be aware it is a little bit longer than normal. Hello and welcome to Bourbon Tea. I'm here with Patrick Nosker and um, he has a doctor in influenza and uh, virology similar to me. We actually graduated together in a, with the same advisor. Say hi. Hey Ryan, how's it going? It is going fabulous. How are you doing, Pat? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. Good, good. So uh, I guess to start off every show, we try and recommend something. Um, I would recommend a tea this time. I've been really enjoying uh, some jasmine tea over the winter break. Um, it kind of has that wintry feel and warms you up. What would you recommend, either whiskey or tea-wise? You know, Ryan, out in New Jersey where I am, it's starting to get cold. And um, you know, whiskey can make you feel a little bit warmer, but there's nothing like a, a cup of tea. Um, I don't really have a favorite, but um, my wife and I had some Ceylon out, out in um, in the UK a couple years ago and had a great experience drinking that. So maybe if you can find some of that around. Uh, and Ceylon is from? It's a Sri Lankan tea. Oh, interesting. All right. I guess we'll have to look into that, huh? Okay. Well, I want to ask, <clears throat> ask Patrick on for today because um he actually has been very involved in a lot of the clinical trials. And um, as much research as I do, other people are better experts. And I, um, after talking with Patrick for a little bit, um, he knows quite a bit about a lot of these clinical trials. And he is actually a part of one of the clinical trials. Um, so you are a part of the Pfizer phase three clinical trial, correct? That's right. Okay. So why don't we start off with um, kind of your experience and um, how was the phase three trial? Did you kind of experience any side effects? What were, and one of the questions I've been getting too is, um, you know, what are the side effects that, that the doctors gave you that are kind of concerning to you? Um, and I kind of ask this because in this way, because um, a lot of the side effects are just trying to cover people's backs, right? Just, just in case. So were there any side effects on that list that felt more real? Yeah. So I guess um, as a little bit of background, um, I'm a, I'm a healthcare investor, uh, you know, during the day. And um, that entails looking at drug companies, biotech companies, and, and figuring out what's going on. And obviously with COVID, 
uh, the world has really changed. Instead of looking at only oncology drugs or rare disease drugs, I'm, I now have to look um, across the spectrum at ways that we can get out of this mess we're in. And so I've been following pretty closely the development of these COVID vaccines and therapeutics. And um, really, all the ones that advanced to phase three look decent enough that I felt comfortable participating in them. You know, we had a good amount of data from the phase one and the phase two trials. And so um, I, and actually my wife, who's also a PhD uh, in, in chemistry and uh, quantitative biomedicine, we both signed up for a number of trials and had been really set up to start um, a few of them, uh, AstraZeneca's, Pfizer's, and uh, Johnson Johnson's, and really it came down to whoever was able to get us enrolled first. And so uh, we ended up, you know, actually getting, we were about to start the AstraZeneca trial. It went on clinical hold because of some safety issues, uh, which we can get into later if you're curious. But um, the next one to call us was Pfizer. And so we made an appointment, we, we you know, set up the time for us to get dosed. And um, so that's how we got on it. Now, with regards to side effects, it, you know, there are, they do, like you said, sort of mention things, a, a large list of things just in case, right? Things that, that are possible. Um, but one of the things I was really worried about in the beginning, thinking about this uh, is, and this is based on attempts to develop other coronavirus vaccines, is the risk of something called antibody-dependent enhancement, or ADE. Yeah. And what happens here is some coronaviruses can actually hijack antibodies that bind to it poorly uh, and use that as a way to enter some immune cells. And so these coronaviruses grab onto an antibody that's grabbing onto them. They get sucked into the immune cell that would normally start breaking up the virus. And instead they infect the cell, similar to the way some other viruses do, and can actually make the infection happen uh, even easier that way. And so I was worried that that was a potential risk here. Thankfully, we haven't really seen that. But of course, that's one of the ones that's mentioned on the trial investigation brochure. Um, you know, the other ones that, that you might expect are similar to other vaccines, injections type pain, fatigue, low fever, uh, chills, right? Things that you might expect from getting a, a viral infection. Um, and actually these mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and BioNTech or Moderna, um, they have the possibility to, to uh, hit a pathway in the innate, in, innate immune system in your body called the Rig-I pathway, which is where your body sees this foreign RNA and starts building an, an immune response to that. So there's some additional risk for you know, having some flu-like symptoms with a, with a vaccine because of, it's based on mRNA. Um, that being said, you know, I have been following uh, a lot of trial participants in the earlier trials, and it seems like you know, the, the side effects, um, they're not great, but they're also much, much better than getting sick. Um, a lot of patients that get it have, you know, a sore arm where they're injected. They feel pretty fatigued for a day or so, you know, and by pretty fatigued, I mean, you might want to go to bed a couple hours early, or, you know, maybe you won't want to go to the gym for that day, but you know, it's not debilitating. It doesn't stop them from going to work. Um, and now that we have some data from Moderna and from Pfizer about their phase three trials, it looks like at most somewhere around five, five to 10% of patients feel so bad they can't do their normal activities, uh, but it only really lasts a day or two. Yeah, that's, um, that's quite a bit of information. And thank you for, again, uh, I, I was so excited about getting into the, uh, the talk of vaccines and all this. I kind of forgot to ask you about your, um, your background. And, and I think the reason that, you know, we want to have you on here is 
because of your background in uh, investments and and um, you you follow a lot of this drug trial stuff pretty closely. Um, <clears throat> okay, so there was a few things I noted there um, that that we're gonna have to break down for our audience. So. Um, Pat and I kind of have worked on the same pathways and we are very familiar. So obviously we know what rig I is. Um, do you want to describe to the audience a little bit what the rig I pathway is and um, how that might, uh, I guess. Yeah. Let me, let me just yeah, go into what, sort of a little bit yeah, of a description about it. So, yeah, let's, you know, let's as, as you know, our, our cells normally are made up of, of uh, you know a lot of things, various proteins and nucleotides, et cetera. But for the most part, your, your genetic information is stored in DNA. And DNA is a double-stranded sequence of, of a bunch of letters, uh, you know, a bunch of these bases. And um, for the most part, you don't ever have uh, double-stranded RNA, right? So when you're, you're making a protein in your body, your body copies that DNA into a single-stranded RNA called an mRNA. And that mRNA is used to code for the protein. Now, your body, when it sees a double-stranded RNA, which is basically a single-stranded RNA, except it has a complementary RNA strand, uh, it, it starts triggering uh, an immune response. And the reason for that is there are a lot of viruses that use double-stranded RNA, so, such as influenza, which is, of course, is the one we studied uh, in graduate school. And because the yeah, body is adapted to noticing double-stranded RNA as being a foreign substance, it automatically starts raising your body temperature, starts uh, building immune cells to start attacking anytime it sees double-stranded RNA. And so that's the, the pathway that it follows is called the Rig-I immune response pathway. And Rig-I is just the name of the protein that's involved in, in sensing that double-stranded RNA. And so when your body sees this foreign RNA, it starts automatically building an immune response. And actually, for these mRNA vaccines, it's a positive because you don't need a foreign adjuvant. And so other, a lot of other vaccines, like many flu vaccines, for example. Uh, real quick, can we, can we define um, uh, antigen? Sure. So an antigen is a foreign substance that your body recognizes as foreign and starts building antibodies against and starts essentially trying to get rid of from the body. So your antibodies are essentially like the seeker missiles and the antigen is the target or something. Right. Like that, that's right? A, a good analogy. Um, so what's interesting here is, you know, this obviously mRNA vaccines are a new class of vaccines. We don't have any that are approved yet. Um, most vaccines are based on protein subunits. So such as for influenza, you might build one for some of the surface proteins of the influenza. So, if you imagine influenza being a, a sphere with these little things plugged into the ends of it, um, those little things sitting on the, the top of the sphere might be put in into a vaccine, but that's not enough to, in, to make your body start building antibodies against it. Normally you need to give it in addition with something such as a foreign tree sap or some other chemical, uh, you know, before thimerosal was used often, which is a, a mercury based uh, component, but, it, it needs to be given with something called an adjuvant, which makes your immune system extra excited and able to, to find these and build antibodies against earlier. Because mRNA vaccines trigger the Rig-I immune response pathway, they actually serve as their own adjuvant. So you don't need to give an additional one. Yeah, so the Marisol is something that, you know, we obviously could 
go on um, a whole podcast probably about, but, um, but what you're saying is that, you know, essentially because you're using double strand mRNA or, you know, what, uh, I guess you said you were saying double strand RNA, but, um, really it's called mRNA, which is, which is messenger. Um, is that, is that, that is really what's activating, um, the immune system and not this chemical thimerosal, right? Right. So you don't need an external chemical yeah. like that. It, you know, it's not actually truly a double strand RNA here, but because the cap of the mRNA is not a natural cap, which so mRNA, if you imagine is like a long it's, wire, uh, you know, one end of the wires is one, one cap and the other end of the wires, another cap, uh, mRNA is means that it has both a cap on one end, uh, that's sufficient to start making protein from it. And the other end has a polyadenylation sequence, which is really just a bunch of uh, the signal to create a bunch of, of, uh, a, uh, a code, uh, peptide. Yeah. It's, it's, um, essentially what we call a poly A tail, right? right which exactly. is just like a little beacon, uh, if, exactly. if you will. Um, because these mRNA vaccines have a non-natural five prime cap. So on the other end from the poly A, um, it, it, it still triggers that same Brigai pathway. Let's let's take a step back because we we've gotten really deep into the science really fast. Um, so let's take a step back and kind of why don't you tell us what a normal vaccine looks like versus these mRNA vaccines that that um, that we've been looking at and um, you know with the Pfizer and which so which vaccines are using which. Um, as far as do you do you know uh, which vaccines are using attenuated what we call attenuated viruses versus mRNA vaccines? So attenuated virus is where they take the actual virus and they weaken it, um, usually through growing them in cells that aren't very good for growing them, such that they mutate a little bit. Um, there are none none of the the phase two trials in the U.S. are using attenuated virus um, of attenuated coronavirus. Now, the ones that are in phase three right now are Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTechs, which are two different. So, so Pfizer is partnered with BioNTech, a German company. So those two are both mRNA vaccines. And then you have Oxford University and AstraZeneca, which is one, one vaccine, and Johnson & Johnson, which is a different vaccine that use a different system uh, based on another virus called adenovirus, where instead of the regular adenovirus shell, it makes the spike protein of the coronavirus. Um, real quick, let's let's tell the audience what the spike protein is. So the spike protein is essentially the tool that the coronavirus uses to enter our cells. So our lung cells and some other cells, including in, in your heart, express a protein called angiotensin II, um, uh, which is you know called ACE2, you might see. ACE2, yep. Uh, the receptor for that. And so the spike protein binds to that receptor and is able to use that to trigger entry into the cell. Yeah. And so that the way the way that I've been kind of saying the spike protein, it's it's kind of something that's expressed on the surface of the virus. It's on the surface. Right. So it's something that your antibodies can recognize. And essentially this battle between um 
the virus in your immune system is who recognizes who first. So that spike protein recognizes ACE2, but your immune system recognizes the spike protein. Is that is right? That exactly. So you know, if if you want to think of an analogy, um, essentially your your ACE2 on your cells is kind of like a lock, and the spike protein's a key. And to block the key from going in the lock, you give it this this coding uh, that makes the key way too big to fit in the lock anymore, right? So that's what the antibodies do. And then you also have the additional benefit of having that coding uh, have a police siren built in and then the police start surrounding it, right? So um, you, you first block it from being able to enter and then you make your immune cells start seeing it and trying to, to fight it. Yeah, that's, that's probably one of the best analogies I've heard. So while we're on this subject about the spike proteins and, and all this. Let's talk about the um, the ADE, which is the, um, I guess, the um, viral enhancement of, of antibodies, right? Uh, sorry, the acronym is ADE. Um, uh, Antibody-dependent enhancement, right? Is that? Right. So that mechanism, uh, I think I wanted to go back just a, a tad bit just to kind of clarify what that was meaning. So do, do you know much about that or how, how this is detected? So the, there are two forms of ADE, but essentially what ADE means is if you have pre-existing antibodies or antibodies that generate to a virus, that the virus is able to take advantage of that and make you sicker. So the primary way and sort of classical ADE is where, um, you know, let's say you're a, you're a bad guy, okay, you're the virus. Uh, a policeman pulls you over and notices something's weird. And normally, you know, that, that policeman would take you to jail or take you to court or whatever. Um, but instead, in the, the situation where there's ADE, the policeman, uh, takes you into his car and then you somehow knock him out and then you, you steal his car and you go and, and continue doing your crimes. Right. Um, basically you're, you're the, the, the coronavirus is, is taking advantage of the immune system, pulling it in to destroy it and then hijacking that and infecting those cells. Um, that's sort of the classical AD. The second type is where something similar happens where in your lungs, you breathe in the virus and all these antibodies stick, but they're not stopping it from infecting. And instead you start creating, creating this gooey mess of a bunch of antibodies bound to a small virus and then forming these little nodules of, uh, of mucus in your lung, preventing you from breathing well. And so those are sort of the two that have been hypothesized and seen in other coronaviruses and other vaccine attempts for MERS and SARS, for example. Oh, interesting. I, I really hadn't heard of that of that second type of scenario. And, and the one that I've been reading up on the most is that the, the most common way is that an antibody will, will bind to a virus as far as it, you know, it finds a virus, it locates it, it kind of does what you were saying with making that key much bigger so it can't, can't fit into the lock. But uh, one of the things that happens is that if you have low affinity as far as like, um, something an antibody that doesn't bind very well to the virus that these low affinity antibodies will be able to enter the cell um, or assist the virus in entering the cell and so a lot of the mechanisms that i've been reading up on have been about where the antibodies assist the virus in the cell entry 
Right. So, you know, this is something that's been seen a lot in other viruses, such as dengue. Um, and what happens here is you have an antibody that binds to a different part of the virus, you know, let's say not a critical part of the spike protein. So the virus, you know, is still able to enter cells the same way as normal. But what happens is, you know, maybe it's a low affinity one, for example. What happens is your macrophages, which are a type of immune cell, they're, they're sort of the first line of defense. They see something weird and they decide, you know, they, they try to eat it up. Um, they literally swallow other cells. What happens here is the macrophage sees this antibody bound to something and it just says, okay, well, I'm going to go eat this now. It's, it's a foreign invader. There wouldn't be an antibody binding to it if not. And then the macrophage consumes the, the, the virus and then the virus infects the macrophage. And then the macrophage now is pumping out a bunch of new virus, right? And so that's what we see with dengue virus. Now, for SARS-CoV-2, which is the, the virus that, that creates corona, the, that's COVID-19. the COVID coronavirus, um, you know, we, we don't really know exactly if, if this happens or not, but we've seen it before in some of the earlier experiments with both SARS-CoV, you know, the original SARS-2003, as well as MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which are both very similar to this one. One thing I want to ask you about is, do you have any information on um, whether this prevents you from getting the virus or the severity of the virus itself? Um, because I think right now there is limited data on whether it reduces number of hospitalization. Is that correct? Or do you have information on um, whether the vaccine helps out with severity? Yeah, so we, we don't know that. Um, part of the issue is, you know, you don't know if you got it unless you do a PCR test, right? And you can't just have everyone test every day right now when all the labs are backlogged. Um, yeah, unfortunately, like, that's just a question we won't have an answer to right now. Okay. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think, I think, as far as like ADE and stuff like that, that was one of the main things that they were pointing to was that if you could measure how severe a virus gets with a vaccine or without a vaccine, that, that, that well, would so one be thing, kind of a one thing that I think is great is, you know, Moderna and Pfizer both looked at what's the ratio of severe patients, right? So Moderna had, you know, zero patients that were on vaccine that entered the hospital from getting sick. And Pfizer had one, uh, and this is out of you know around 10, right? So I think Pfizer had 10 total and Moderna had 11 total. Um, so seeing a 90% reduction in hospitalization, right, is obviously really critical, right? Because that those are the people that you need to make sure stay out of the hospital. Yeah, and, and let's just point out that um, what's a current hospitalization rate for COVID? I know that the ICU, rate is around 18%. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know, uh, off the top of my head, the, the numbers today, but, um, you know, somewhere around 20%, I think has been the historical, uh, rate of patients that flow that get COVID and, and have to enter the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then so, of that, you know, a smaller portion enter the ICU. Yeah, I mean, and and also that ICU number might be a little bit. Um, That's tough to tell because so many ICUs are like over full or not even allowing patients in right now, right? And this happened in the spring as well, just because there aren't enough beds. 
Um, so I'm not sure how reliable or useful that data is right now. Yeah, yeah. So let's just stick with, you know, you're now reducing, uh, what were you saying, 20% of hospitalizations um, versus 90%, or sorry, sorry, um, 10% hospitalization without vaccine versus a, you know, one in 10, but obviously that's a really, really small sample size um, as for hospitalization, right? Like, you know, there's a huge difference between um, measuring potentially a million people that have. Yeah, right. Well, I think what's important and what looks real is that, you know, 90%, between 90 and 100% of patients uh, that go to the hospital are ones that did not get the vaccine on this trial. So it's, it's certainly reducing the rate of severe COVID. So that's, that's the number that you're bringing up. The number you're bringing up is that it's reducing hospitalization by 9%. Is that kind of the statistic? Yes, I think that's an about? accurate number. Okay. That's a, that's a great number to know about because, you know, one of the things that I've also been kind of really trying to stress is that death isn't your only option. Um, and so a lot of people are really putting in a lot of weight into that 3% mortality rate and saying, well, I'm probably going to live because I'm 30 and healthy and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you know, there, there, a lot of that ignores the fact that, you know, there was that Ohio state study that came out that was saying, you know, eight out of 26 students, well, 12 out of 26 students had cardiovascular damage eight of them had scar tissue and four of them actually developed myocarditis, which is a potentially fatal heart disease, you know, within, you know, 20 years or something like that. So, you know, you, there, there are other long-term effects besides just dying or not from this. Yeah, absolutely. So reducing that severity is, is just as critical in my mind as, you know, uh, getting the virus or, or not dying. Right. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think it's important to, to look outside of deaths as well. Yeah. So, um, you know, unfortunately I think we're already getting kind of on, off topic of, of what we, uh, plan to talk about, um, because this is a super interesting topic. Um, ADE and, and, and this um, antibody-dependent enhancement. Um, so it's something that we can definitely follow up on on future episodes or, you know, if, if, if Pat is able to donate some more time to, to talk about this. Um, so let's go on to kind of, um, I, I want to revisit um, so you, when, when you and your wife took the, the vaccine, um, you guys didn't feel too much of symptoms or were there any symptoms? I mean, obviously you might've been in the placebo group or something like that, right? Yeah. So my wife, Kristen and I both went the same day to the same center and the way it works is for the, for the Pfizer study is it's, it's double blinded, uh, where the person that receives the vaccine doesn't know if they're getting a vaccine. And the doctor who's the one seeing you doesn't know if you're getting a vaccine, but there are, is somebody that does know. And the person that does know is the person that actually injects you. And so that person's not supposed to interact with me, the participant or the doctor, um, because that could unblind. They just and walk the into for, a room and, and give you a shot. 
Right, exactly. They, they literally just, they see the number. So you're given a tag, which has your participant ID. And there's a big database of every participant ID. And this is all predefined, you know, generated before I was on the trial, where just this random number was associated with gets the vaccine or gets placebo. And so when we join the trial, we're given this number. And the doctor doesn't know what the number means. But the injector looks up the number and sees, okay, do I give them vaccine or do I give them placebo? And normally you'd say, you know, why does somebody need to be unblinded? But the, the reason is because this type of vaccine doesn't look like a regular vaccine, right? It's a new type. It's, it's mRNA. It's in a, a lipid nanoparticle, uh, which is, it's encapsulated in this sort of oil-like gel. Um, and it's the only way that it can get into cells. And so it looks very different than the control arm, which is a saline solution, right? It's just basically salt water that's injected into your body. And so, you know, I'd, I'd heard that from participants in the earlier trial that the actual vaccine is like this brownish liquid, milky brown liquid. And you would definitely be able to tell that it's not a clear liquid like a saltwater solution. Yeah. And so, you know, basically, uh, it, it's interesting that it's a trial where not everyone's blinded. But anyway, uh, one of the requirements is that you can't look during the injection. You can't look at the needle. You can't look at the vial. They come in, you're looking away the whole time. They stick it in you. It's actually an extremely quick and nearly painless injection. Um, it didn't even really feel like anything was going in my arm. Would it would it feel similar to like the flu vaccine if anyone had gotten that? You know, it's it's. I probably if they didn't tell me they were injecting me, I might not have even known. It was the least it's painful needle I've ever ninjas, felt. Huh? It's really crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, you know, my wife and I were there. We both got the injection. They make you wait for 30 minutes to make sure there's no short-term side effects, which are usually, you know, the first 30 minutes are when most side effects that are dangerous come out after a vaccine. Uh, 30 minutes later, they come and check on you, and then they tell you can leave. And they, they, make sure, they basically are checking to see, is the injection site red? Is it bumpy? You know, do you have a hive from it? Um, but, you know, we were both good. In fact, both of us, I remember in the car ride home, said, you know, feels like we're on placebo. You know, we've gotten flu shots earlier this year. It didn't feel anything like that. You know, the flu shot makes, makes your arm hurt. Uh, you can definitely feel the needle going in. Um, it almost like, it was like somebody was playing a prank on us. You know, we went in, maybe they didn't even inject us with anything. Maybe they didn't even put a needle in us. You know, it was so painless. Just, just touch you with their finger. Yeah. They, they, and it didn't even feel like that. It was really, I mean, it's hard to describe because I've never had a needle enter me without me realizing it's entering me. Um, and so anyway, you know, we went after the first visit. So there are two injection visits. Uh, the first visit entailed them taking a blood draw to see if there are antibodies that you already have in case you were previously infected. Uh, they do a, a COVID swab, PCR swab, where they stick this thing up your nose and it feels like it's poking in the brain. And then they inject the vaccine. And then we drove home and we decided, you know, it's near lunchtime. Why don't we get some lunch on the way? And by the end of lunch, I noticed my arm was starting to feel a little bit sore. You know, it wasn't really noticeable, but if I poked it, I could definitely tell that something was up and Kristen didn't feel anything at all. And, you know, as the day went on, I went home, you know, went to work. Uh, she went to work, you know, at, at dinner time, uh, my arm was now noticeably sore. You know, it, it hurt to move. Um, but otherwise I felt normal. Um, the next day came around and my arm was like, dead. It, it hurt to move it at all. And her arm was, was perfectly fine. Like she, she basically had zero symptoms whatsoever from the first one. And I had a sore arm. I, I was pretty fatigued, you know, didn't really feel like getting up out of bed. Uh, but of course I had to work. 
And so it was pretty clear to me that there was a big difference between us. And so in, they gave us this, this study bag, which included a, a swab test that we were supposed to self-administer if we think we're getting sick with COVID, um, a thermometer, a bunch of other information that you know, isn't, isn't really uh, important. So I checked my temperature a number of times. You know, my temperature never really went up. I started getting a, a mild headache, but really that was it. I had this arm that was, felt like it was like a tree just stuck to my body that was throbbing. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, I had a little headache and, and I was kind of fatigued, but it really wasn't so bad after the first shot. And she had zero, like nothing at all. Um, so three weeks later, you know, we had our second visit, which is when we get injected with the same, you know, basically exactly the same shot. Same thing happened. They did a, uh, except there was no blood tests, but they did the PCR swab. Um, they injected us again, felt like nothing whatsoever. Uh, waited for 30 minutes. We were all good. Uh, went home. And this time we got, I guess we got injected around 9, 9 a.m. Mm -hmm. This time by around 2 p.m. that day, I was just exhausted. I was, you know, in the middle of working and I, I had to have an energy drink, which I rarely, basically never have during the day, uh, just to stay awake so I could finish the day. And I went to bed, I think at like 7 p.m. that night, even though I had had 200 milligrams of caffeine, you know, only a few hours before. Um, mm -hmm. And I was just so, so tired. And then the next day, you know, I woke up exhausted. My arm was, again, killing me. You know, it might not have been quite as bad, but it was still pretty bad. And uh, I had a, a low fever, you know, I think it was 100 exactly. And then I, it peaked at 100.9. Um, but I never had chills, you know, which is something that I'd heard reported by a lot of people. I, I, I never had, uh, and I didn't have a, a bad headache. Um, one thing that was a little bit weird, and I don't know if it was related or not. Uh, I could have slept on my, my face weird or something. But for whatever reason, anytime I looked and my eyes went left, I had a headache. It was so bizarre. <laughs> Whenever you looked left? Yeah. Like I, if I turned and looked left, it was fine. But if I moved my eyes left, it hurt. Okay. So, so you just have to avoid looking left. If you yeah. So basically I was, I was like moving my entire body to look left. <laughs> I was so tired and my arm had hurt so badly that it was really the least of my concerns. So I took, you know, you're allowed to take after you experience some of these side effects, you're allowed to take uh, ibuprofen or aspirin or leave or whatever. So I took some leave. Ended up feeling okay. Um, went to bed. The next next day was a little bit better. Still a little bit of fatigue. Still arm pain, but but nothing else. Um, and at this point, you know, let's see how many days later is it? Five days later, I'm like basically perfectly fine. Um, yeah. You know, Kristen again zero symptoms whatsoever. Okay, so I think that's a you know that's a great kind of little anecdotal thing about, you know, what the difference might be between, you know, not having the vaccine and, and the actual vaccine. Um, but, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is to talk about more of this in-depth um, kind of phase trials and stuff like that, that, that would be difficult for me to look up. Um, so, you know, I think, I think if people want to have follow-up questions for Pat, uh, they can, you know, join our Facebook group or, you know, message me in some way and we, we can, uh, we can get in touch with Pat and kind of, uh, ask future questions about, about, about his experience with this. Um, <clears throat> so let's start talking about 
these different um, um, trials and maybe some of the things that you think are kind of the better trials? Are, is there any trial to you or any vaccine to you that stands out above the others? You know, I think it's hard to argue uh, that Pfizer and Moderna don't have very, very good vaccines, you know, at this time. Um, the way all these trials are set up is to get quick, decent information, you know, fairly high quality. Uh, but of course, it doesn't tell you about how long you're going to be protected, uh, which obviously I think is important. And we, you know, we just don't have enough data or time to know that. Um, and, and at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really matter that much because I think if it comes down to, you know, we get six or 12 months of protection, you know, we're just going to get a booster shot every six to 12 months until this is, you know, squished down quite a bit. Um, we know it, you have some protection, you know, it, it certainly seems like it's at least several months. Um, and we know the protection is, is quite good. Um, you know, both the Moderna trial, which showed 94 and a half percent efficacy and the Pfizer trial, which showed 95% efficacy that's really blockbuster level efficacy for a vaccine. Yeah. And part of it, I think, is the fact that it's based on mRNA. Normally, these antigen-based ones, which are either a, a subunit of protein or they're a virus that's attenuated, they end up mutating quite a bit when they're trying to manufacture these proteins or, or virus itself. Um, one of the issues with the flu vaccine is there are multiple strains of flu going around, so you never can get 100% efficacy if there's one that isn't covered. But also, you know, growing these in eggs, you end up getting genetic drift, which is that the flu that's injected into the egg actually mutates from the one that's actually spreading around. So, so let's, can, can I pause you right there? Um, because I, I think what some people may not know is that um, a lot of these vaccines are grown in egg whites. And um, some of the side effects that people experience from vaccines are, are, allergic responses to egg whites. Um, but would there be anything else that you'd want to kind of comment on about, you know, how, how these things in, in egg whites? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think there's anything specifically about egg-based vaccines. You know, influenza is the most common one grown in egg. Um, there are now are approved vaccines that are not grown in egg for influenza that have shown some years to have better efficacy. And the reason for that is because you don't have this mutation that happens yeah. just because the virus is not really designed to live in an egg. Yeah. And then, and then uh, some other people, another question that I got, um, so I'm going to surprise you here um, was that, you know, are what vaccines don't really require um, bovine serum or some other serum. Do you, are you aware of, of uh, the vaccines that wouldn't require some of these serums? Well, you know, one thing that I think a lot of people have been worried about, you know, for religious reasons, for example, or political reasons or ethical reasons or whatever, is not having a vaccine that's made with, uh, in a cell line that's derived from a fetus, right? And so the, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, for example, is manufactured in a cell line derived from that. So, you know, if that's something that's really critical to you, you know, I think if that were the only vaccine around that worked, I think, you know, I would say everyone should take it. But because we have some options, such as the, these mRNA vaccines, you know, you could just try to get one of them. Yeah. Um, you know, those are the two that, that don't rely on the sort of traditional manufacturing te techniques. And what's interesting, and I think a lot of people don't realize is these mRNA vaccines aren't actually that weird. So if you think about it, viruses 
are this shell, right, a capsid, and uh, often a, a, a lipid uh, fat that surrounds it. And then yeah. inside is RNA that makes the proteins of the virus, right? These I've mRNA vaccines very... are essentially that, but a bunch of the other stuff stripped out, right? It's just the RNA for the spike protein and just this lipid nanoparticle, which is basically like the cell membrane. And it really is, you know, if you think about it, is basically how, you know, they're just using biology, you know, to do this. Uh, you know, they're, they're copying the way a cell normally works. And because of that, it's really simple. You have this RNA that can be chemically synthesized. You know, you don't even need to use any cells to manufacture it. And you have this, this fat particle, which you could even make out of petroleum if you wanted to, right? You can make it out of oil from the ground if you wanted to. Um, it's, it's really, you know, quite far away from these things that are made with calf serum, you know, from, from you know, young cows or fetuses of cows uh, or fetuses of humans, right? It's, it's, uh, it's basically as far from that as you can get. It's really just chemistry. Yeah, and I uh, sorry, I might have interrupted you a little bit there, but I think the way that I've been um, telling my audience is that, you know, essentially the mRNA vaccines are, are kind of an oil bag of just, <laughs> you know, mRNA particles uh, that just hold the R mRNA into some sort of bag until it gets to your cells. Well, so before, you know, you asked me about the different vaccines in phase three trials, and I mentioned, you know, two sets, but yeah. really, there's really one other large category that I didn't mention. And that's sort of the traditional vaccine approach, right? Making the protein, the spike protein, and sticking it uh, in your body like a flu vaccine. And so the, the two companies that are, you know, fairly far along here and about to start phase threes are Novavax, which is a, an American company, and then GSK, which is a British company. Um, and those, those two are really the most traditional vaccines, right? Ones that are using approaches that we've used for, you know, 30 years to make highly efficacious vaccines. And both have an adjuvant because they don't have mRNA that can trigger, you know, an immune response um, that's derived from a tree that grows in South America. So you're, you've kind of told us about these different types of vaccines. Um, what, in your opinion, is the big difference in safety versus in, in uh, attenuated vi vaccine? Um, sorry, attenuated viral vaccine versus an mRNA vaccine. So, one of the major concerns, and and I don't like to bring this up too much because I think it's a theoretical concern that doesn't really happen. And maybe you can expand on this. Um, but I have heard it even from scientists, which is that the mRNA might be able to incorporate into your DNA and actually incorporate genes of the virus into your DNA. Um, so with kind of these kind of theoretical type things, what, what would you think is, is the safety, the safest? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the chance of that happening is essentially zero. You know, tr traditionally, your DNA is used as a blueprint to make RNA, and that RNA is used as a blueprint to make uh, a protein. And uh, essentially, you know, there are some pathways with some viruses where you can take an RNA copy and make a, a complementary DNA and, and have that integrate to your genome, but... Um, that basically there's, there's nearly zero chance of that happening, especially because it has a different cap, um, right from a natural MRNA. 
um, I think that risk is, is extremely low. Now, there isn't one vaccine that does use DNA uh, from a company, Inovio, and that, that's a company that has been trying to make vaccines against nearly every infectious disease and has never gone into, you know, approved. Um, and it also requires an electroporation device, which essentially looks like a gun that has two, <laughs> two electrical needles that shocks your cells. Anyway, I, I think it's really not worth considering because it's, it's so unlikely to be used uh, in mass. Um, but that yeah. one does actually use DNA. I, I suppose there's some higher risk of, you know, if you had double-stranded brake repair <laughs> um, issues, you know, maybe it could get into your DNA. But, um, you know, I don't think there's any reason that you'd want to use one like that anyway. Um, for these you know, the safety that, that people have been looking for um, are sort of the traditional, you know, is this going to cause permanent, you know, disability with, with somebody, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Outside of, you know, having chills and a fever, which are things that are short term, you know, which, which ones, I guess you're probably asking, have the highest risk of some long-term complication. And, you know, at the end of the day, they, they really look similar, except, you know, for both AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson, which are based on an adenovirus platform, um, both did have some sort of safety signal in in the middle of the trial, which caused them to be halted for some time. But there's no evidence, no strong evidence that suggested it was related to the vaccination itself. It just looked like, you know, when you enroll 60,000 people on a trial, you're bound to have somebody that has something wrong with them already and doesn't realize it. And so the AstraZeneca trial had a patient that actually had multiple sclerosis, which is a, a lifelong disease that's incurable. And eventually as it progresses causes some dysfunction in your nervous system. And so they happen to just while they're on the trial, you know, I guess didn't realize they had MS and they had an event that they, that was termed transverse myelitis, which is where you have inflammation of your spinal cord. And so, you know, that before they realized that that patient had MS, they said, okay, well, is it, is it possibly the vaccine that's doing it? They looked pretty deep into it and it didn't seem like, you know, there was any really strong evidence of that. Uh, similarly, so can, I, can I interrupt you, which is sure. that, um, so what you're kind of saying is that even someone with MS, it doesn't look like that, that vaccine would, would be detrimental to anyone with, with MS, right? I mean, I think it's hard to say for sure, but it, it doesn't, it looks like it was sort of in the realm of statistical chance that they just happened to get a patient that had something like that. And that just flared during the trial. Um, you know, there were other patients with MS that didn't get, get any issues. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's, it's probably not related to the vaccine, but I don't think we can say for sure. Yeah. 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 So the other adenovirus vaccine, which is from Johnson Johnson, um, that actually had an issue where a patient had, uh, something wrong, uh, where they had a, basically a, a blood clot in their brain during the trial. And that, caused the trial to be halted as well. And it was ruled by the Data Safety Monitoring Board that it was unlikely to be related uh, to the vaccine. And so they were able to continue the trial. You know, it, it doesn't make much mechanistic sense why a vaccine like this would cause something in the brain. You know, it doesn't readily cross the blood brain barrier, for example, there's injection to muscle tissue. Uh, but they, they always want to be extra sure, especially if somebody has, you know, a traumatic event like that. Yeah, so so let's let's delve a little bit into that, which is that um, the the claims from the uh, Pfizer and, and uh, 
and other companies are making these mRNA vaccines is that, and attenuated vaccines is that it doesn't really spread beyond the tissue of the injection site, right? Yeah, that's the idea. And normally when you inject something into muscle tissue, you know, you're not putting it into a, a vein that allows quick movement of something across your body. Yeah. What happens is, you know, you inject this, these mRNA vaccines, for example, the mRNA enters the muscle cell. The muscle cell starts pumping out spike protein, uh, but for a very short amount of time, you know, usually somewhere between, you know, six or 12 hours or so. And then your immune system sees it and starts, you know, building antibodies against it. And so it's not like this vaccine is getting sucked into your muscle, being transmitted all around your body and then having issues elsewhere. That's, you know, that's why you have pain where you're injected because it's all a local reaction. Yeah. I think it's important to point that out because in addition, uh, the reason that you're injected into your arm is because that's kind of the first visitation um, from the immune system, right? So that's the first site that your immune system is going to be essentially activated by. And then your immune system transmits that data or that information all throughout your body. Right, exactly. So, you know, your, your body senses there's something going on here. Uh, let's recruit some immune cells. They all quickly traffic in via, you know, both blood vessels as well as your lymphatic system, which is a separate set of vessels that only, uh, basically only immune system uses. And they quickly get to your muscle tissue and start building antibodies. Theoretically, these vaccines should be fairly safe, right? Um, but how effective are those? And, and let's focus on um, the numbers, as far as, you know, how are they calculating this 90, 94%, 94.5% effectiveness? How is that number actually calculated? So I guess, you know, in terms of how effective a vaccine is, um, comes down to a couple of things. One is you want to be able to develop long-term protection, which, you know, is, is a combination of antibodies as well as your immune cells being uh, able to recognize the virus in the future. And so, um, you know, I guess before we get into those percentages, it, it might be important to know, you know, how did these companies decide to move these on to the next, you know, to phase three trials? And that was all based on antibody data. You know, we give these vaccine to people, we don't have a placebo group, we see how many of them produce good antibodies. And so it's, it's actually interesting looking across these because um, they're all over the place. So Pfizer, you know, had somewhere around a titer of around, you know, nine, 10,000. Uh, Moderna was somewhere around 109,000, you know, 110,000. And then o- uh, Oxford and AstraZeneca were, you know, in the hundreds, you know, under a thousand. And so uh, it's, it's a little bit hard to compare these across trials because they're all run a little bit differently, but that gives you some idea of the order of magnitude of how strong these, these vaccines looked in the earlier stage trials. Um, now, that being said, you know, what matters is how do they protect us in terms of getting the virus, right? So we have these two companies, Moderna and then also Pfizer, which have shown some data um, about how effective the vaccines are in preventing uh, coronavirus. And the way these trials were set up was they each enrolled, you know, tens of thousands of patients. Moderna enrolled 30,000 patients and Pfizer enrolled 44,000 patients. And what they did was they said, okay, we know people are going to get infected, right? If nothing else, the placebo patients are going to get infected. So we'll start looking at the data once a certain number get infected and then look at what percentage of that population was infected that was on placebo and what percentage was on the vaccine. 
And we can make some, some assumptions here knowing that 50% of the patients were given placebo and 50% of the patients were given the vaccine. And this so, is true of all the trials except for AstraZeneca's where it was two thirds got the vaccine and one third got placebo. Yeah, so the majority of, of people were getting uh, the vaccine and it wasn't um, because I think some of the way that people might have been reading the the news breaks was that, you know, only a few people got the vaccine and most of the people got placebo. So this is right. Like so, so that's not true at all. You know, half of the people got placebo, half of the people got vaccine for the two right. trials that have data. And so, you know, if you read the, the numbers and you say, okay, what 94 people, like how, how can we make a decision on a vaccine based on that? But the reality is, you know, tens of thousands of people are given it. Um, only 90, you know, 94 people, for example, for Pfizer's interim analysis um, got sick, right? And so it's, it's a little bit interesting because the two trials are a little bit different in how they judge a positive case, but they both required that you had at least one symptom, such as a cough or a fever, uh, plus a positive PCR test, which means they give you a swab and they see that you have the, the virus you know, currently. Um, so it's not just, you know, they weren't looking for asymptomatic people because who knows, you know, if you're asymptomatic, who knows, you know, if you should get a swab. But the number of people that got actively sick, as in, you know, they had symptoms and they had a positive test, um, that's what they looked at. And so Pfizer, they, their inner, the initial analysis, they reported that it was over 90% effective. And since then, uh, they've had their final analysis, which is a larger number of people, you know, in the hundreds. Uh, and it, it also was over 90%. So the final analysis showed that it was 95% effective, um, which means that of the total population that got infected, 95% of those people were ones that got placebo, and only 5% of the ones that got infected were on the, the vaccine itself. Same thing with Moderna. They showed it was 94.5% effective, which is statistically the same thing as 95%, right? They're, they're basically the same number. And the same split was seen there where, you know, 5.5% of the population had been given the vaccine that got sick, and then the other 94.5% were the placebo patients. And so you can tell, you know, if you're going to flip a coin, um, you know, and it's equally weighted, normally if the, if the vaccine was doing nothing, you would expect it to look like that, right? Where half the population had the vaccine, half the population had placebo. But instead, your coin was really, really, really lucky. And 94 and a half or 95% of the time, it landed on one side, which means there's definitely something going on here where it's protecting you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's let's talk about what that 90% threshold actually really means for for everyone and and um this might be a little bit of a curveball cuz we didn't talk about this before but um so a lot of papers that I've read have you know kind of put that herd immunity for how infectious this virus is um that 70% needs to be actually vac uh, uh, immune to the virus for herd immunity to actually start taking effect. Now, I've done calculations based off of the 1980s paper, whatever that that did this herd immunity, and I'm kind of more on the 80%. I think you know 80% of the people. Um, 
So let's take a second just to think about how awesome it is that a vaccine would be achieving a 90%, 90% plus um, effectiveness because that means that not everyone needs to be vaccinated, right? But, you know, a good majority, like, you know, 90% of the people need to be vaccinated. Yeah, so I think, Ryan, there are a couple important things to think about here. You know, one is... Uh, these trials have, haven't been done in anyone under 12 years old, right? So already you have a pretty large percentage of the population that we don't know if the vaccine will work and be safe in yet, right? I mean, I think it probably will be, but we don't know that yet. And they're not even testing it in patients that are that young because the FDA normally requires patients uh, that are older first, and then you can give it to kids. And so um, there are also people that just won't be able to use a vaccine for other reasons, right? Either um, they're too frail right? The, the side effects that are fairly insignificant could be bad enough that they're, you know, too sick uh, to tolerate it. Or, you know, they could be patients that have some autoimmune disease and are on immunosuppressants. Maybe they got an organ transplant and they're constantly on uh, cyclosporin or, or some other drug that suppresses the immune system so they don't die with that transplant. Um, those patients will never be able to take a vaccine. Or if they do, the vaccine won't do anything in them. And so it's really important that we're uh, you know, the idea of herd immunity is such that you can get all the people that can take the vaccine such that you don't need to give it to some of the other people or that they don't, you know, if, if the vaccine wouldn't work in them, you know, that's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, now, but I guess what, what's important here is, you know, we don't really know what that number is for herd immunity. You know, I've seen numbers. There was one paper that, you know, preprint that came out months ago that suggested as low as 20% could be needed, which, you know, is just unreal to me. You know, I've never heard of a, of a virus that needs something that low, but um, yeah, <laughs> I think at the end of the day, <laughs> That's unreal too. it's just, it's so ridiculous, but we have some data now, right? We have a cruise ship in Japan, right? Where, you know, roughly half the patients got infected. Um, we have uh, a population of, of people in, in parts of New York city, certain zip codes, which have, you know, 80, 90% antibody positivity. And so if we're getting to those levels, that suggests that herd immunity is at those levels or above, right? And um, to me, it just seems like the number is probably, yeah, I would probably agree, you know, if I had to guess, it's probably, you know, closer to 80% than 70%. Um, but, but the reality is we don't really know. You know, it's certainly higher than in the 20s because we have some populations in, in Spain and in, in uh, Italy that were hit very, very hard back in the spring and they're getting hit even harder now. And people were saying, oh, look, they hit 20% and then that was it for them, right? Um, I think clearly the, the number is significantly higher than that. Yeah, and, and let's point out in America right now, um, I didn't look up the, the data today and maybe I should have, but essentially, you know, we're around 5% of the population has been affected so far. Maybe we can fact check that real quick. Yeah, I think, you know, I think right now of positive tests is somewhere around 12 million. You know, we have a population of 330 million. So it's, it's a little bit lower than that. But on the other hand, we didn't have enough testing earlier in the year. And there were certainly people that were sick that we didn't know were sick. So, yeah, somewhere probably around 5%, I guess, would be reasonable for how much of the U.S. has been infected before. Yeah, so we're we're not even close to that threshold. And, you know, with 250,000 you know, deaths, um, roughly around that. Is it, is, I'm sorry, is it two? Yeah, I think it's 256,000. Two, 256,000 deaths right now, you know, and we're only at 5%. If we need to get to that 20%, which is a, 
laughable kind of amount, you're looking at 1 million American deaths, right? right? So, you know, I think, I think this kind of brings up this a point that, you know, if, if people want to achieve her immunity, you have two options, a vaccine or getting infected. And getting infected obviously means that, uh, you know, to get to these kind of more realistic percentages, which is 70, 80%, we're going to have, you know, in, in the 10 millions dead, whereas a vaccine would hopefully kind of keep that under <laughs> 10 million, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so let's kind of, um, I think I got a little bit sidetracked there um, just because it was a, it, it was something that I felt really, really important about. Um, like how much lower once, once a real data comes out, like whether, do you, do you think that the, that percentage might drop because a lot of scientists I've. I've yeah. So Pfizer's out. done. I mean, they've hit their final analysis of, of 95%. Uh, so they are final and that's what they're submitting to the FDA. Correct. Yeah. Moderna will be in that area. You know, I don't think we know for sure yet, but they're, when they had their interim analysis, they were over 70% done. So it's yeah. not going to fall far from 94.5%. Okay. And, and I've seen that, you know, scientists were kind of in, in the FDA, if, if you know this, uh, their requirement is 50% effective in order to improve uh, some sort of vaccine, right? Yeah. So I think part of the idea behind that number was, you know, that's a number that's around where the flu is. And we know the flu saves you know some people from dying right and it's not it obviously we have the flu every year uh there's no such thing as herd immunity to the flu but there are two specific strains um you know the fda wanted to set a fairly low bar because we you know if we can do anything to stop people from dying that's good right um and they also wanted to be able to have a bar that a new vaccine could beat. um it's just lucky that you know the first two that got to the finish line happened to be really, really good. I mean, like incredibly good. Yeah. Um, so that, that 95% mark isn't, isn't really going to change. You know, Pfizer's full final number is 94 or 95% and Moderna's near complete number, you know, near final analysis number is 94 and a half percent. So I don't expect it to, you know, change significantly from there. Okay. So let's actually uh, talk about this now. I, I want to ask you about your investment type background, which is that, you know, you're looking at two different vaccines and potentially one vaccine, uh, as far as Moderna, um, can be, so this is talking about storage and logistics and logistic of distribution. So the Pfizer vaccine requires a negative 70 degrees Celsius, um, right. whereas a Moderna requires a negative 20 degrees Celsius, which is standard freezer temperature. Um, but the Moderna requires 100 milligrams, whereas Pfizer requires 30 milligrams. No, these are both micrograms. Mike, sorry, you, thank you very much. Uh, 100 micrograms for my, Moderna and 30 micrograms for Pfizer. So the Pfizer requires one third of the amount that Moderna does, but logistically Moderna is easier to distribute. And then you can also imagine that, you know, eventually we'll have, um, when the attenuated virus data comes out, that maybe there will be a little bit more, 
easier way to distribute some of these vaccines. Is there anything that investment wise or any of that, that like kind of sparks your interest or is all of this kind of very exciting? No, you know, I, I think, you know, one thing that's, that's interesting and a lot of people are missing here is until basically Monday when the Moderna data came out um, last week, we had no idea that it was going to be okay at 20 degrees, minus 20 degrees Celsius, right? We, we, that, that data actually came out the same day as the efficacy. We were under the impression that both were going to take minus 70 degrees C. And so Pfizer is working on testing to see if it'll handle better temperatures. But, you know, the reason they, they have these numbers is because they're very early testing where they're doing stability testing, which is seeing how long these things can last in different environments. Um, they, both companies have only tested minus 70. And because is, they knew it, that. Is it six weeks or six months that they're stable for? Yeah, I think it's six months. Six months. Um, that's why, that's why I remember too. And so Moderna had started a, a test to see if this was stable at a higher temperature, you know, pretty early on in the cycle because they thought this could be an issue. But while this was happening, UPS and FedEx have been building these huge supply chains uh, to get this vaccine out with these just warehouses full of these freezers that could go down to minus 70, minus 80 degrees Celsius. And so at this point, you know, the U.S. Distrib distribution system is actually probably going to be fine, even if both were minus 70. Um, they've FedEx and UPS have both figured out ways to pack it uh, in dry ice, which is below minus 70 degrees Celsius, so they could be shipped out. Mm -hmm. um, and really, you know, every trial site, of which there are hundreds in the U.S., are equipped with a freezer that can go that, down that low. Essentially, every large university in the U.S. has freezers that can do this. You know, we had some in our lab, for example, in graduate yep. school. And Multiple. You know, I would say this takes precedence over some of our old experimental stuff sitting around. You know, they could use a shelf to, to store the vaccine. But um, <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, U.S. logistically, most people will be fine because they live within, you know, an hour or two of where they, they definitely have freezers like this. Um, that being said, it is a big deal for Africa, right? It's a big deal for, for Southeast Asia where, you know, they don't have this sort of logistics that we have here. Um, and these are things that I think are, you know, real reasons to look at other types of vaccines and new ways to ship, right? These big air droppable cargo boxes full of dry ice and a little, a few vials of vaccine are really a novel solution, which we've never tested before. But I don't see any real reason why it wouldn't work, even in, you know, in Africa. Um, so I think really the supply chain logistics fear is not something that's going to amount to much. Um, and I think also by the time these vaccines are really in the market, that we'll have better data from Pfizer to know whether or not theirs is more stable at a higher temperature as well. And I don't see any real reason why it wouldn't be, because chemically it's very, very similar to Moderna's, as long as they can have good purity and make sure there's not a high concentration of RNAs, which is an enzyme that breaks down RNA they probably will be fine. Yeah. I mean, the way, the way that I've been thinking about this is like, it, it might be uh, something that you brought up very early was uh, nano, uh, nano discs and kind of how they form these pockets of mRNA and that like, do you know if the Pfizer Moderna nano disc compositions are different? I, I, these are the Put these it, are the lipid nanoparticles you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, like so. So essentially, the oils just you know for our audience, the oils that make up the bag that holds everything, uh, which are called uh, lipid particles, right? Do you know if that compensation is different? That's maybe why that the temperature difference exists. 
they're not exactly the same, but they're essentially the same. You know, the, um, for most people, they won't notice any difference. You know, they're both stable in the same sort of temperature ranges. Um, they both have very similar flexibility. They both get into cells in a very similar manner. You know, I don't think that's, that's going to amount to a big difference in terms of stability and temperature. Okay. All right. I think the main difference is Moderna tested theirs at a higher temperature earlier. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, also, you know, we're looking at stability over six months. So if you're airdropping something that was made, you know, whatever, a month ago and, or, you know, made, you know, a few weeks ago and you're airdropping it into Africa or, you know, a country that doesn't really have the infrastructure that the U.S. does, um, that that it might be stable at like, you know, zero degrees Celsius or freezing or, you know, slightly higher for maybe a week or two, right? So we don't really have any of that stuff. That's all hypothetical. Um, so I guess, I guess just to kind of wrap up, how are, how are your feelings about all of this? And, and uh, would you recommend uh, the vir- the vaccine that you took um, to other people and maybe, you know, just to be a little bit, uh, what's, a, what's a word, uh, um, cliche, would you recommend this to your mother? So, you know, I actually did recommend it to my mother. Um, okay. But the, so the trial filled up before my parents could get on. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the things when I was trying to consider what to do after college, I, I, I thought, you know, one of the things I really wanted to do was be able to help people and going to graduate school and selling my soul to the devil and becoming an investor, you know, has made it so I don't get to really directly do that. And so when I, you know, obviously coronavirus is a huge problem. It's killing, you know, economies, killing people, et cetera. It's important that we figure out a way to get out. And I thought it was my sort of social responsibility to do this because, you know, I'm fairly healthy and fairly young. Um, it's unlikely I'm going to have a major complication and we need the data. And so, you know, that was something my wife and I thought was important. And we both, you know, went on the trial. I think it's, there are plenty of other trials that have, will probably work. And um, if, if this is something you, you think, you know, you could help out with, I would recommend, you know, you or, or whomever uh, get on one of the other trials, you know, Johnson, Johnson, AstraZeneca. Um, it actually sounds like Pfizer is going to be running an additional trial to test higher temperatures. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, you know, it's what I've heard is that they could open up somewhere between 15 and 30,000 uh, new U.S. participants in, in basically the same trial I'm on. Um, so, yeah, I would absolutely recommend a vaccine. You know, both Moderna and Pfizer look great in terms of the risk benefit uh, profile. Um, they both look very efficacious. They look pretty safe. And um, look, I would do it again if I had to. Uh, I think my wife, if you know, if she got placebo, should should definitely do it. Um, I don't really see anyone that shouldn't do it, except for someone that's under twelve, you know, because we don't really have enough data there. In fact, both of them looked pretty good in people that were sixty-five, and which is important because those are, of course, the higher risk people. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, would I recommend some of the other trials? You know, I, there's a trial out of Russia called, you know, they call it Sputnik Five. I'm not really convinced that vaccine is as good as they say. Uh, there really hasn't been any real peer-reviewed data on the phase three, which of course there hasn't for Moderna or Pfizer either, but they were sort of conveniently uh, 
were able to set an efficacy number that was just above Pfizer's initial report of over 90% at 92%. (laughs) (laughs) And it just seems almost too good to be true. It's also kind of a weird vaccine where there are two different types of injections, you know, between the first and second one. Um, I'm not really sure I trust that one yet. (laughs) What about, okay, so let me ask you about the the Chinese one then. Do you have any information on that? Because what I've read is that, you know, they put 90% of the company into the first trial, like phase ones, and then, uh, or, you know, phase two. Um, And then they've been testing in kind of the Middle East and stuff like that. Do we know anything beyond kind of just where they're testing and stuff like that, that I've mentioned? Yeah. So I guess you're probably referring to the CanSino vaccine, which is the biggest of of the Chinese trials. And that one's running not only in China, but also in Canada and, and Mexico and some other, other regions. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the vaccine has a decent shot. The preclinical data didn't look as good as some of the other ones like the Pfizer and Moderna ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, it's very stable. Uh, it can handle high temperatures. You know, it would certainly be a good one to get out to, an, uh, you know, third world populations where they don't have the refrigeration and other standards that we do here. Um, I don't think it'll end up being as good efficacious uh, as efficacious as some of the other ones, but you know, we'll see. I don't question the data though. You know, they, they, it wasn't just company folk that were on the trial. Although, you know, of course it's a little bit weird when you see that a large percentage were employees uh, on an early trial. Um, I don't think the data was fake. Okay. Um, Yeah, no, I wasn't, thinking that the data was fake, but I, I thought that uh, my initial thought was like, well, if I work for the company, I better hope I do a good job <laughs> right. type thing. Um, okay. So yeah, yeah, I mean, there is a big risk of running trials like this, right? In the U.S., all these yeah. trials are run with a placebo control arm. Uh, part of that is because of some mishaps we've had with other trials in the past. But um, what it definitely does is allow something called functional unblinding. And that's you know, where you feel a side effect and you know you're not on placebo because you don't just, can't just placebo affect a fever, right? Um, that, that basically mm-hmm. can't happen. Mm-hmm. And so pe- the, the risk was people could live differently, right? If you didn't get a fever or you didn't get chills or you didn't get a headache or you didn't have injection site pain, maybe you'll live extra safe because you think you're on placebo. Um, now, that being said, uh, that probably would have hurt the efficacy and it still looked great. So, um, you know, I don't think it really had a strong implication with such good numbers. Um, but, you know, like you're saying, you know, maybe the, some of the employees wanted to make it look extra good. There could have been some gaming using functional and blinding. Um, but, you know, I, I think we, we just got to look at the data. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't work at all. And, uh, you know, I think we'll find out soon, probably in the next month. Yeah. So, Um, I think I'm going to kind of final off with some of these questions, which is that, and I'm not sure if you have the answers to or not, um, which I think I've, I've been really wanting to get people prepared for the appropriate timeline of when they can expect a vaccine to their household, you know, and, and I think, um, one of my fears is that, and, and the reason I really wanted to contact you today and have this episode come out um, kind of around this announcement time is that um, 
people don't really understand that it hasn't been FDA approved yet, right? It's 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 now eligible for FDA approval. Right. Um, and but, but even right. after FDA approval, it might take a while. It might it, to get to the every single day person that isn't an essential worker or is not an elderly person. What's your opinion on getting it to someone like me who, you know, is, is working from home and um, not really a high risk? Right. So, you know, I think there, the important thing to note here is there's, there's a regular FDA approval process, which is called a BLA, right? A biologics licensing agreement. And um, what happens here is, uh, um, or uh, approval, uh, biologics licensing approval. What happens here is the company will submit this huge docket of information, which will include efficacy, safety, manufacturing, et cetera, data. The FDA has now six to 10 months to review that data and decide whether or not the drug can, can be approved. Um, we don't have that kind of time now, right? And so all these things we've seen approved, such as the antibody cocktails from, from Lilly and from Regeneron, have been under another pathway called emergency use authorization which is a more accelerated way of getting something approved. And it's not a permanent approval. Um, in fact, it can get pulled any time. And so for EUA, which is the, you know, the acronym that's used for this, um, FDA still has to make a decision based on the data. And Pfizer on Friday said they submitted this data, right? The EUA uh, package. Now, FDA, you know, of course, they have 44,000 patients of data to go through, right? They can't just do that in a day. Um, it's probably going to take them a couple weeks, which is what it took for a Regeneron's antibody cocktail to get approved under that pathway. And FDA has already set a date of an advisory committee, which is an independent group of people that are experts in the field that will go through the data and discuss it publicly via webcast on, uh, on the 10th of December. And so until then, nothing will be on the market, I think. Um, after that day, the U.S. Department of Defense is in charge of distributing the vaccine. and so. You know, there have been some hints as to what, you know, sort of strategies they're thinking about. One is, yes, frontline workers, emergency workers are going to be the ones that get it first. And then second will be high-risk populations, uh, such as people in nursing homes. Um, and then third will probably be higher-risk elderly population, obese population, et cetera. Uh, and then after that, you know, sort of regular people. Um, but it all comes down to this EUA process, right? FDA can say, okay, we're going to make it available to hospital workers and EMS workers and people that work in nursing homes. Uh, and then they could add, you know, a month later after those people get vaccinated, okay, we're going to allow people that are over 80 and in a nursing home and then over 70 in a nursing home. And this is sort of the strategy that people expect. Um, now, the two companies that have ones that will submit soon, um, they're only going to be able to make somewhere around 30 to 50 million doses by the end of the year. Uh, what, what, least, which year is that? that? That's 2020. 2020. And of okay. course, they each require two doses, right? So yeah. we're only going to be able to vaccinate, you know, somewhere around 5 to 10% of the total population by the end of the year, which really is the first responder population. Um, now, Pfizer has said they're going to try to get their placebo patients on the, the, the vaccine uh, using a, a design called a crossover where the placebo patients get switched over to the vaccine arm and then basically reset from day zero in the trial. 
Um, part of the reason for that is you get more safety data for the vaccine. You get some more efficacy data. You get more durability data to see how long it lasts. Um, but they've suggested they're not going to do that until there's an emergency use, author, emergency use authorization that applies to that patient on the trial. So Kristen, for example, my wife, you know, she's in her late 20s. Um, she's probably not going to be the first person to get the vaccine that's in the placebo group, right? And, um, you know, it's important that they give it to the people that will benefit the most from it. And I think it's a good decision. Uh, obviously, I'm saying that as somebody who thinks they got the vaccine. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, you want to give it to the people that are, that are going to have the, the biggest benefit to humanity, right? And that's people that are exposed to a lot of people that are sick and people that could die. Yeah. Um, so I think sort of a, my guess is the vaccine will be shipped out um, mid-month, you know, maybe December 20th uh, and, and set up. And what happens is it's going to be distributed to the state governments and the state governments have to have a plan on how to get it to the population the Department of Defense defines. And so already the Department of Defense has built a logistics network to get it out and you know, this advisory committee meeting on the 10th will really tell us what the physicians and what the experts are thinking about who should be getting it first. And, you know, what, what populations maybe we'll see some data about which ones it works the best in or which one has the best safety in. Those are some really good thinking points. And, and, you know, one of the things that I would like everyone to kind of have a conversation about and, and, something that I was trying to bring up in episode three, which is like, you know, who actually should be getting the vaccine first, because, you know, it is pretty evident that there is going to be a massive short supply and probably a high demand, uh, you know, at least once a vaccine is, is convincingly to, to the entire public that, you know, it's, it's effective and all that stuff and safe. Um, so, you know, I, I think that unfortunately because of time, we kind of should be wrapping things up, but uh, I think me and you could go on for hours about, you know, what's the most ethical way to distribute this and, and stuff like that. And a lot of the points that you were bringing up, right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not up to us, right? We'll just see what they do. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, um, I want to say thank you, Pat, for coming on the show. Um, it was an honor having you on and it was great, uh, learning from you today. And, um, it's very nice kind of reversing roles here where I'm the person learning today. Um, so it was great hearing, hearing everything that you were saying. And, and, um, is there any kind of thing that I might've missed that you might want to kind of bring up or that you think that is, uh, exceptionally important? You know, I think um, if, if your listeners uh, are curious, the uh, FDA posts all the advisory committee meeting webcasts online uh, on actually the last vaccine one was, was on live streamed on YouTube. And so, you know, I would, I would suggest uh, if people are interested going and trying to listen to it, it's, they're really fascinating. They take hours. You know, I, I normally, when it's a day that there's an advisory committee meeting like this, I just have it on in the background and I'm listening to it the entire day. Um, that's a really worthwhile experience because you get to figure out first, you know, what are the experts thinking? And second, um, is the government really doing its job to make sure that this is both safe and efficacious? And um, it's, it's pretty clear from watching them that, that they do. They do a really deep job digging into the data and thinking about it. 
And for those people that are a little bit skeptical, like how can we get something like this approved so quickly, you know, it'll be a really telling experience for them. Uh, and they'll be able to see it for themselves. They'll see the data and they'll be able to make their own interpretations, but also they'll hear, you know, what kind of skepticism the FDA has. And it, really there are a ton of smart people there and it's not some, you know, big governmental body. These are people that, you know, one of them went to grad school with us, right, Nancy. And yeah. uh, these are people that are real scientists. They're not people that are put in by politicians. Um, they're real, you know, thinkers and they do their job, you know, for the most part, without political interference, which I think is important. Yeah, I mean, you know, without kind of going into uh, too much about <laughs> who we know, but, um, you know, I, I just want to kind of bring up my personal input on this, which is that, you know, yeah, in, in August and stuff like that, and kind of running up to an election where things seem to be kind of rushed, in my opinion, um, trying to be rushed through, um, that's when we, I contacted our friends in, in the FDA and, and, um, and it was really those people, uh, and, and their responses that make me feel comfortable because their mantra there is that if people don't trust it, no one's going to take it. What's the point? Right. You know, and, and I think, when when that was kind of established as their thought process at the FDA, and then also the fact that multiple head scientists have threatened to resign if something was pushed forward that they didn't believe in, that you know, all this stuff would be kind of um, that like that that really helped in in my feeling of secureness in this. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Pat. Um, I really appreciate your time today and I would love it if we can um, maybe we can get some of our listeners to uh, give you some questions and either I can relay those questions to you or we can do a completely new episode with you coming back on um, where, you know, you kind of answer some of these um, questions to our listeners, maybe directly to them if we can kind of coordinate of course, like during during the holidays, where it's tough to coordinate everything, but um, yeah, that would that would that would be really nice. Um, and I really appreciate your thought and how much you have uh, inputted for this episode. Yeah, it's always great catching up with you, Ryan, and and happy to help. Um, and yeah, feel free to send off any questions, and I'll do my best to answer them. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening, and uh, have a good week. Bye, guys. Toodles.